You are listening to a sermon from Mission Point St. John. We hope this message encourages a deeper connection between you and Jesus, our Savior. He's our strength. He's our portion. Hallelujah, Jesus. Hallelujah, Jesus. Praise your name. Can we praise the Lord one more time? Hallelujah, Lord. Hallelujah, Lord. Hallelujah, Jesus. Hallelujah, Jesus. We praise your name. Amen. So thankful for what God is doing in his church. Amen. He's expanding the borders. He's reaching out into communities. Every culture, every tongue, every nation. Hallelujah, Lord. It's his creation. Hallelujah. I watched this morning as we just began to praise him by lifting up our hands, lifting up our voices all across his place. And his presence was the same for everybody. It went across this place and just began ministering to you here this morning. I believe that he's already done a work. Amen. I believe that he's already been ministering to you here this morning. To your specific need. Hallelujah, Jesus. Hallelujah, Jesus. Praise your name. Amen. Amen. God is so good. God is so good. What an absolute honor and privilege it is for me to be able to be up here in front of you today. I don't take it lightly. And just before I get into the Word, I just have a couple of things that I'd like to say. I'd like to thank all those that had part in making Cherish Conference a success this past weekend. We had somewhere in the range of 250 girls, age 7 to 15, here at the church this past weekend, Friday, Saturday, along with their mothers, along with their chaperones. And we are so excited about that. Thank you. Sister Shonda and Sister Wanda, you did an incredible job decorating this place. We thank you for your efforts. Amen. And we also want to thank April and Irma and their team, their kitchen staff. Amen. For helping out with putting on the meal. Amen. They did an incredible job. We're so thankful for them. They're not here this morning. They have... uh, uh, they have taken off on vacation, and uh, rightly so, after all that work, I don't blame them whatsoever. And uh, so thank you so much for everybody that had part. Just an incredible time. And normally it would be Pastor that would, that would be doing this next part, but because he's not here, I just want to extend a congratulation to my wife and to Sister Tompkins on receiving their ministerial license. Amen. So proud, godly proud. If I'm able to be that here this morning for, for that, they put in months of work uh, studying book after book and um, completing exam after exam. It was no small task, was it, Sister Tompkins? That's right. Amen. And they met with the board last week, last Monday, and uh, received their ministerial license. So excited about that. And uh, this morning, the Carters, they are at LCC. 
ministering there in Quispam Sis with the Thorntons. So uh, we want to make sure that we pray for them that God have his will done there this morning as well. We're so blessed as a church to be able to not just have this campus where we come together and worship the name of the Lord, but we also have eight other daughter works beside us, eight other churches that uh, that uh, we're part of and uh, so excited about that. We're able to send out people, send out pastors and individuals to support those works and uh, thank the Lord for that. Amen. Uh, here this morning, I'm going to be turning um, over just shortly. I'm just going to change my mic battery, uh, so just excuse me. You may be seated. They prefer, they prefer if I preach from the pulpit mic. That battery was no better. <laughs> uh, but here we are this morning. So, uh, uh, and just before we get started into the word of the Lord, I just want us to pray one last time. Ask God's will to be done here today. Amen. God, here we are once again. Lifting up your holy name together. Lord, we are your people. You have called us for a purpose. You consider us, Lord, to be God, your people. Lord, and we are so grateful for that. What a privilege it is to serve you here this morning. What a privilege it is to come into this place and join together with like-minded individuals in one accord and just lift up your name in prayer and praise. We ask your will to be done in this service. We pray that you would speak to us mightily, Lord, from your word. Anoint your servant today to speak your word. God, I pray, Lord, that you, you would allow every heart in this place and every heart that's watching and listening online here this morning to be touched by your word. God, let your will be done through me, Lord. Hallelujah. I give you all praise in Jesus' name. Everybody said in Jesus' name. Amen. A couple of years ago, we had the privilege of hosting my wife's aunt uh, while she was here in St. John uh, undergoing some physio. And uh, so she stayed at our place for uh, about three weeks. And um, during that time, of course, we, we wanted to show her around. We wanted to show her St. John and show her different things. And I can't even remember the context of uh, what we were talking about. But as we were showing her some things in her, she, her first language is French. And... Um, uh, in her in her English, she said, "Well, that's that's too money for me." <laughs> Make a, a comment on how expensive something was, and uh, it's something, of course, that stuck with us, and uh, we laugh about it and still talk about it to this day. Every time that we see something that's a little bit too pricey, which happens more often than not nowadays, we say, "Oh, that's too money for me," <laughs> and it begs the question: What is too expensive? What? Would we look at today and deem that is too much? On Boxing Day, my family and I went to my grandmother's house to visit with her. She's 94 years old, and I am always amazed at how strong-willed she is. Such an incredible lady. While we were there, I took a walk through her home and just reminisced through my childhood and uh, began seeing the things that I had seen all along that were there on her walls. And one thing stuck out to me. I took a picture of it. On her wall, there is a framed picture, this right here, and um, she has written a motto, and it is right in front of her kitchen table where she, every morning, takes out her big Thompson chain Bible, lays it out on the table, and reads the word, 
and that is directly in front of her. And uh, it's, been in, it, it's been there in my mind forever. <laughs> it says, say nothing that you would not like to be saying when Jesus comes. Do nothing that you would not like to be doing when Jesus comes. Go no place where you would not like to be found when Jesus comes. Words to live by. It stirred my heart as I read that and reflected on the way that she lived her life. Her life, it's inspiring for anybody who knows her. I look back over time and consider the things that she has faced. I'm sure there have been times for her to consider the cost of following Christ. Yet with resolve, she has lived as a testimony that it's all been worth it. It's all been worth it. And today I want to direct your attention to a story in the Bible with King David. A time in his life where he was faced with sacrifice. A time where he had to consider the cost. We'll back up a chapter because this this takes place in chapter 24, but I want to take us first to chapter 23. It's a powerful account of what is referred to as David's mighty men. David was a king that had been blessed to surround himself with mighty warriors. The verses tell of Josheb who raised his spear against 800 men whom he killed in one encounter. The verses tell of Eliezer who stood his ground when Israel's army retreated by himself and he struck down the Philistines till his hand grew tired and froze to the sword. The verses tell of Shammah who did not flee like the rest of Israel's army but took his stand in the middle of the field he defended it and struck the Philistines down. And it tells account of account, record, and it, it records the names of some 37 such brave men that surrounded David and brought victory after vi- victory in their military campaigns. These men performed great exploits and became famous for their abilities in battle. Chapter 23 is a celebration of the battles that the people of God had faced and miraculously, despite all odds, won. So when we come to first, the first verse of chapter 24, it, it comes as a surprise to us. It really does. Verse 1 of chapter 24, it tells us that the Lord is angry with Israel. Did we miss something? 2 Samuel chapter 24, verse 1, tells us that the Lord is angry with Israel. What did we miss? What a shift. Married men, have you ever stepped into the room where your wife is and she seemed off. So you ask her, what's wrong? Only to have her respond with nothing, I'm fine. If you've been married for any length of time, you know all too well that fine is like the worst word that can ever describe how your beautiful bride is. Fine doesn't actually mean fine, does it? It means quite the opposite. In fact, it means you better quickly figure out how not fine things are and why are they are so not fine. Please tell me, you know I was born without a brain. We're sometimes like the scarecrow in The Wizard of Oz. He's asked by Dorothy, what would you do with a brain if you had one? We are usually dumbfounded and have no sweet clue. And we need things spelled out for us. This is the impression that I am left with when I turn to chapter 24 of 2 Samuel. Did we not just read of the mighty warriors defeating the enemies of God? 
it says over and over in that passage that the Lord brought victory through these men to David and to the people of Israel. So what would God be angry about? What had Israel done or maybe what they had not done? To understand, we turn to our attention back to Genesis chapter 15, verse 5. God called out to a man named Abram. And it says, then the Lord took Abram outside and said to him, look up into the sky and count the stars if you can. That's how many descendants you will have. God promised that the number of the children of Abram, which would be the people of Israel, would be as the stars of the heaven, innumerable. And he goes on to say that this people would belong to the Lord and the Lord would belong to them. He would enter into a covenant with them, kind of like a marriage, a covenant with them. He says that anyone who blesses them will be blessed. Anyone who curses them will be cursed. As long as the Lord was their God, he had their back. They would have nothing to fear. They were God's people, not anyone else's, God's. Over 850 years go by, and we speed quickly ahead Israel had grown dramatically, just like God had promised. What a nation. And now they have a king ruling them, King David. In 2 Samuel chapter 24, he takes things into his own hands instead of depending on God. He had come through some difficult times. His son Absalom almost wrenched the kingdom away from him. His future looked unstable, uncertain. But what David does spot through all of this is the victory after victory in battle through these mighty men of Israel. And his attention turns there. They had won every single battle that they had faced. But he had forgotten who it was that was actually giving them the victory. So instead of counting on the Lord, David counts the people. The picture we get is that his trust toward, turned toward human strength rather than depending upon divine power. And he commanded Joab, his military commander to take a census of the soldiers. This is the same one that writes in Psalm 20, verse 7, some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. This is the same David that now turns his attention to the people and says, I need to count them in case I need to get myself out of a mess. How did he get it so wrong? Don't get me wrong this morning, it wasn't the counting of people that was wrong. In other places in the Bible, God specifically asked for a numbering of his people. The problem seems to be his motive, his heart behind all of this. And that's usually what it always is. It comes down to our heart. He only wanted a number of men who were able to wield a sword. But why? Was he comparing himself to maybe some other nations around him to see if he could have the largest and boasts that he had the largest? Did he want to establish confidence that if he dug himself into a hole, he could get himself back out? Was he trying to congratulate himself on some military victory so he could put another trophy up on a, sh on a shelf? Or was he so desperate he felt he needed to know how much strength he had behind him? Either way, it was a sinful attitude in God's eyes because he was depending upon military might instead of on God's strength. We learn in the New Testament that it's in our weakness we see his strength. It's in his weakness, in our weakness, that we see God come to the forefront in his strength. 
He was trusting in his own understanding rather than trusting in the Lord. God had forewarned them about this years before when he set them free from the slavery that they had faced in Egypt. In Deuteronomy, he warned his people against the sinful attitude of self-sufficiency and independence from God. We see this in chapter 8. He says, be careful that you do not forget the Lord your God, failing to observe his command that I am giving you this day. Otherwise, when you eat and are satisfied, then your heart will become proud and you will forget the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You may say to yourself, my power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. But remember the Lord your God. If you ever forget the Lord your God and follow other gods and worship and bow down to them, I testify against you today that you will surely be destroyed. We need to be careful that once we eat and are satisfied, once we come into the house of the Lord and receive what we get, receive what we want from the Lord, that we don't walk out of this place and say, I've done this on my own. Remember the Lord. Once we get what we want, once our bellies are full, once we have that job that we wanted, once we have that car or that house that we wanted, that we forget the one who gave us the blessings, not us. David's right-hand man, Joab, he saw right away that what David was trying to do was wrong. And he warned David. David, he insisted on going ahead. He disregarded God's word. He disregarded the advice of his commander. Do you know that God places his word in our life to instruct us? He places a pastor as an authority over us who is responsible to God for us. He speaks into our life in many different ways. In the church, God has surrounded us with his people. Mentors, teachers, pastors, brothers, sisters in the Lord to support us, to help us. But if we ignore them and we go off in our own direction, it will spell out certain disaster. Now I wonder what would happen in 2023 if we joined together in one accord as one church for this one mission that God has called us to. What would happen? How many chains would break that are holding people as addicts? How many walls would come down with people who are battling depression? How many healings would we see? How many would be filled with the gift of the Holy Ghost? How many would be baptized in that precious name of Jesus Christ? There is no telling what God could do if we would just get that mindset. Joab comes back with the numbers. After he had finished nine months of going through the land, counting everybody, 1.3 million people is what he comes back with, men that are able to hold a sword and fight in battle, 1.3 million. And immediately David's heart is overcome with guilt. Immediately. Verse 10 tells us David's heart condemned him after he had numbered the people. So David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done, but now I pray, O Lord, take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. Once David received the numbers, he realized what a fool he had been. He was face to face with the fact that these were not his men that he, were, that he was counting, but God's. And it was not his job to measure. Can I just stop right here for a moment? And say that it is not our job to measure the circumstances that surround us and see if God is up to the task. It is not our job to try to figure out how God is going to accomplish his will in our life. 
It's not our job to put a measuring tape on our life and calculate what it would take for God to do what you need him to do. It is only our job to trust him. Hear me today. It's only your job to trust him. David's conscience being smitten, he cried out to God and asked for God to forgive him. He tells the Lord how wrong he was. He tells the Lord that his attitude was wrong. And in response to his prayer, the Lord offers him three choices, three consequences. Seven years of famine, three months of defeat by the enemy, or three days of plague. And we read in verse 14 about his choice. He says, and David said to Gad, this man of the Lord that came to him, I am in great distress. Please let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercies are great, but do not let me fall into the hand of man. David naturally found the choice an incredible burden. Didn't know how he was going to choose. None of the choices seemed good. They all tore him apart. But in the end, he chose rather to fall into the hand of God, whose mercies were great, than into the hand of men who would show no mercy. Verse 15, it tells us that the Lord sent a plague on Israel from the morning till the appointed time, from Dan, from Dan till uh, Beersheba. 70,000 men of the people died. God sends a plague on Israel, and as a result, 70,000 people died. They died because David tried to put a ruler on what the people could do if David needs, needed saving. And thankfully, the story doesn't end there. God had a plan. God always has a plan. He has a plan for our redemption. He has a plan for restoration. We need to trust that plan and trust the process, no matter how long it takes. Verse 17 Verse 17 tells us, then David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking the people and said, surely I have sinned and I have done wickedly. But these sheep, talking about the people, what have they done? Let your hand, I pray, be against me and against my father's house. David prayed that God would not continue to punish the sheep, punish the people for what the shepherd had done. Let God rather bring the punishment on the one who it belonged to, to him and his house. And this brings us to the storyline of where God has directed me to speak today. All of that was just a segue to bring me to the message. So now I begin. Okay, you can start your clocks now. Reset them again. We're at the beginning. Verse 18, it tells us in Gad. <laughs> I was only joking, just in case you were wondering. Oh, Lord. How long must I suffer? <laughs> Verse 18, it says, And Gad came that day to David and said to him, Go up, erect an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Arunah the Jebusite. A sacrifice was necessary if David and Israel were to be spared. And so God, he has a plan. He sends the, the same man of the Lord that came to him and told David, You've done wrong. And that the Lord is going to offer you three choices to pick from. It's the same man that comes to him and tells him, God wants you to go and build an altar. A sacrifice was necessary if David and Israel were to be spared. And so he commanded him to go and build an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Arunah the Jebusite, where he had stayed the hand of the angel. The threshing floor would be a large, flat, exposed area where the grain could be gathered and tossed into the air with a winnowing force so that the wind could remove the chaff. 
it was a fitting picture of the need for the removal of all that was unsuitable. It was a picture of God sifting out of David's heart what shouldn't be there. Any attitude that got in the way that said, you know, I can do this on my own. What if God doesn't come through next time? I need to be able to measure out what can be done. What if God doesn't bring about the change that I need done in my life? I need to be able to put a, a measuring tape out and say, what can I do if, do if God doesn't come through? And so David's heart begins to be sifted out in this moment from any attitude that shouldn't be there. And my prayer today is, God, take a deep look at my heart. Remove from me anything that shouldn't be there. Let your spirit work on my life. Blow away any worthless attitudes that are there that won't build your kingdom. God knows that we come to him with our life in a mess. That's why he gives us his spirit that blows through our life, removes anything that shouldn't be there, anything that is going to hinder us, anything that could make us fall. In verse 19, it tells us, so David, according to the word of God, went up as the Lord commanded. David, for the first time in our text today, obeys the Lord. He surrenders himself completely to what the Lord has asked him to do, and he makes his way to the threshing floor. First Chronicles chapter 21, it also records the story. It indicates that they were clothed in mourning clothes. He went with the officials of the city with him up to this hill that God had called him to. Verse 20, now Aruna looked and saw the king and his servants coming toward him. So Aruna went out and bowed before the king with his face to the ground. We are left to imagine the thoughts of Aruna when he looked up and saw many of Israel's most important officials, including the king himself, heading towards him. He was the Jebusite. It would have struck fear in his heart. He was one of the old, original inhabitants of Jerusalem, and he would not have been in favor with the Israelites. He would have been one of the first to be blamed when calamities came on Israel. We see in our text here today that he came out and he fell on his face to the ground before the king. Verse 21, it says, that, Then Aruna said, Why has my lord the king come to his servant? And David said, To buy the threshing floor from you, to build an altar to the Lord, that the plague may be withdrawn from the people. And crouched there upon his face before the king, he tells David, Let my lord the king take up and offer whatever seems good to him. Look, here are oxen for burnt sacrifice and threshing implements and the yokes of the oxen for wood. All these, O king, he says. Aruna has given to the king. And Aruna said to the king, may the Lord your God accept you. Isn't that what we, that's what we want. We want to be accepted by the Lord. We want to be pleasing to him. And he tells the king, you can have everything you want. King David, not only the threshing floor, but also the oxen for sacrifice and the wood of instruments for, fi for fire. Aruna, he offered everything. If it's for God, he can have it all. He can have it all. There was simply no holding anything back. There was no excuse, no protest. He didn't say that the cost would be too much. Aruna was willing to relinquish all he possessed for the purposes of God. But David knew that a sacrifice wouldn't be a sacrifice unless it cost him. And that is where we arrive here today at verse 24. The king said to Aruna, no, but I will surely buy it from you for a price. Nor will I offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God 
with that which cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. The king, with his heart finally set on God, knew that he could not offer to God what cost him nothing. Take the property, take it all, Aruna said. Make your sacrifice so the plague might be stopped. It's free, it's yours. But David responded, I will not give to the Lord that which cost me nothing. Hear the heart of David. I've considered the cost. I will do whatever it takes to please the Lord. He had learned his lesson. He had learned what God was trying to teach him. The place where God had told him to go is called Mount Moriah. It's translated as Mount of Teaching. Mount of Teaching. The spot that David bought from Aruna happened to be the very place where Abraham, that we just talked about not too long ago, stood to offer his only son that was promised to him to God 850 years before King David arrived on this hill. God tested Abraham to see if he would give everything to follow the Lord. Of course, God never wanted Isaac as a sacrifice. It was to see if Abraham would sacrifice at all. And we know from the story that God stopped Abraham in his tracks with the help of an angel and provided himself a ram caught in the thicket as a sacrifice. And this would be also the very spot, years later, after David had been there, that would be dedicated for his son, Solomon, to build a temple for the Lord, where everyone would come and offer sacrifices. There on that threshing floor, David built an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. And so, because of costly sacrifice, the plague stopped. He had learned what God was trying to teach him on the Mount of Teaching. Thank the Lord. Let me share with you how this plays out in our lives today. There was something that has been plaguing our world ever since the days of humanity began. Sin. Sin that was brought on by disobedience. And it has overrun our world. But we were promised a Messiah that would come from the bloodline of King David and free us from the grip. And roughly 2,000 years ago, we read from Matthew chapter 1 about a virgin named Mary that miraculously, by the power of the Holy Ghost, was to give birth to the Messiah. We read this in Matthew chapter 1 verse 21. It says, and she will bring forth a son, and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. He will save his people from their sins. In a few weeks from now, we will collectively celebrate the fact that God came in the form of man and gave himself as a sacrifice for all of us so that we can be free from the sin that plagues us. He paid the price with his own blood. We will remember together what it cost him to shed his blood, face ridicule, be beaten and despised, and lay his life down for a people that he created. He sacrificed his life on a cross so that the plague of sin could be stopped in your life, in my life. And when I consider what it cost him, When I consider what it cost him, what cost is too great for me? What cost is too great for you? God keeps good books 
he will not be left owing to us for what we've sacrificed in our life to follow him. I'm telling you right now, he won't be left owing. As believers, we are called to an ever-growing, closer walk and relationship with Christ that is only made possible because of what he has done for us. We live in a day where a good number of people have been led to believe that becoming a Christian is as easy as praying a simple prayer and requires a very little cost or maybe even no cost at all, sort of like the credit cards that we are bombarded with in our mailboxes. Right? No commitment, no fees, 0% interest. Sounds great, but I have 0% interest as well. But in God, that's a different story. Don't get me wrong this morning. Understand that salvation is offered as a free gift to those who are willing to receive it. You could never, I could never live a life that would merit salvation. But we could also never have sufficient funds to purchase it. It is the free gift of a gracious God who provides it to whoever will turn from their life of sin to Him. We were all born into this world that is corrupt, full of sin. And we have no way in and of ourselves to free ourselves from sin. We can try as hard as we want, but we don't have it within us. And maybe you're here this morning and you have tried many times to try to get away from the thing that has been chasing you down. And you can keep on ending up in that same habit, that same routine, that same addiction, that same set of circumstances. And you can't get away from it. Let me tell you here this morning that you don't have the might. You don't have the strength. You don't have it within you to get away from that thing that plagues you in your life. But he does. And he's made a way. He's made a way. Jesus came to make a way where there was no way. He sacrificed himself and created a pathway called salvation for you and I to walk on. Jesus declared that unless you repent, you turn from your life of sin and turn towards him and be born of water and of spirit. You cannot enter the kingdom of God. We are called by God to repent of our sins, to turn to him, be born of water in baptism receive his spirit with the evidence of speaking in tongues. And then comes the hardest part of all, because all of that stuff is given for free. All we need to do is just surrender all. But as we're surrendering all, the hardest part is to trust him. To trust him. You don't have to have everything together to come to Christ. Let me tell you that here this morning. I'll put that disclaimer out here. You don't have to have it together to come to Christ. Brother C.B. Dudley, he used to say, you don't have to get good to get God. You have to, you have to get God to get good. It's a mouthful, but it's true. You don't have to wait until you're completely cleaned up and say, okay, maybe now God will accept me. Maybe my life is in order enough so that when I walk through the church doors, lightning isn't going to strike me down. The roof's not going to cave in. And I'll finally be accepted by the Lord. But we know here this morning that we can't get good enough in order to get God in our life. He puts himself in our life because he's good. He's good. Come on, somebody here this morning. How many can testify that he's good? It's not because of my works. It's not because of the things that I've done. He's good. And so I trust him. I trust him with my life. I trust him with my future. He loves you so much. He doesn't want you to leave 
and the mess that you were in. And well, salvation is free. The Lord has made it very clear that he is calling us to follow him. And by following, we can learn from him. And by learning from him, we can live how he wants us to live. And this morning, he's calling you. He's calling you. He's calling you out of the sin that has been plaguing your life. He is calling you to follow him into greater depths of his presence. He keeps knocking at your heart's door. You just hear that gentle knock every now and again that just kind of, what is that? Every now and again, you just feel that sudden urgency in your life. Should I respond to that? I feel something just pulling, something knocking, something grabbing my attention. What is that? That's God. Sometimes we, he's calling us out, and sometimes we misinterpret what his calling is. Let me stop right here and explain something for you. I'm going to break it down a little bit. There are at least three stages of his calling. This is a teaching moment right now, so I'm just going to sw- switch from preaching to teaching, if that's okay. Both are for the edification and the building up of the church. We find from Scripture that there are at least three stages of his calling. We are first and foremost called out of this world of darkness into his marvelous light so that we might show forth the praises of him who has called us out, according to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. Secondly, we are then called to be holy as he is holy, according to 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 10. I figured I'd give these, uh, in case anybody's taking notes here this morning and wants to write down these scriptures to look them up after service. Living a life separated from this world. He wants us to act different, to look different from this world. Yes, he is full of grace and mercy. Praise the Lord for that. Or else none of us would be here. But he's also holy. He's holy. And so he wants us to live in this world. Yes, this world that's full of sin. But not to be of this world. And finally, according to 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2, and Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11, he calls us to be saints and apostles, and prophets, and evangelists, and pastors, and teachers, and mentors. Are you getting my, are you you catching what I'm saying here this morning? Sharing this gospel, that's what it's all about, sharing this gospel, this truth that he has given us. He's trusted us with this truth. He is better than anything you have ever experienced. Hear Hear me this morning, he is better. He is better. Hallelujah. The verses my kids were memorizing this past week is from James chapter 1, verses 2 to 4, and they've been quoting this all week long. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. When you begin counting this morning, if you're going to count anything, count it all joy. Count it all joy. And I think that's why the author of the book of Hebrews was able to write about the Messiah and say, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. When he considered the cost... He thought of you. When he considered the cost, he thought of you. And for the joy that he had about the possibility 
of you coming to him, he gave his life so that you could live. If I could have the music come back, give these wonderful people some hope this morning. You could live for him. And if we could all stand, I'm going to come to a close. King David had to consider what it would cost in order to remove the plague from the land. But generations later, most important of all, the Messiah would come because he had considered the cost it would take to remove the plague of sin from the land, from the world. And he counted it all joy. When I take a moment and consider the cost that he paid for me to be free from sin, I'm amazed. And that's why it's really not a sacrifice to live my life for Christ. When I consider the cost, I count it all joy. We are asked in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, this. It says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. You want to be pleasing to the Lord here this morning. We all do. Then we follow after him. We commit our lives in the full, not a partial payment. God, I'll give part of you, part of myself to you this morning and maybe a little bit more next Sunday, but just in pieces, okay? Not all at once. But like him, we follow his steps that he took to the cross, and we say, God, I surrender all. I commit myself as a living sacrifice. I want my life to be holy, acceptable, perfect for you. To present ourselves before God as a living sacrifice. Offer all of ourselves before God to do his will in our life. And so when we do that, we are building an altar of commitment by way of his salvation building an altar of separation through his holiness building an altar of dedication through a consecrated life and offer ourselves on it the only reason that we are able to be a living sacrifice this morning is because he made a way he made a way and so that's what we're going to come and do this morning God wants to enter into a covenant with you he wants us for himself he wants to be our God and he wants us to be his people set apart, separated onto Him. And for us to depend on Him for everything, He is to be our strength when we are weak. He is to be our healer when we are sick. He is to be our Savior when we need saving. He is to be our all. But for Him to be our all, we have to be willing to give Him our all. And so that's what I want us to come and do here this morning. Maybe you have come here this morning that you've looked over your past and you see the victories after victories, the battle that God has one in your life, the things that have been done time and time again. And I invite you to come this morning and just once again give all credit to the Lord where credit is due. Offer Him your praise and your worship. Offer Him your life. And maybe there are others who have been chased down by the poor decisions that they have made. And I invite you to come and surrender all. Surrender all to the one who has surrendered all for you. Let Him change you from the inside out. Let Him make you new. So as we begin to sing this song here this morning, I invite everybody to come.
everybody to come. All are welcome. We want to give praise to the Lord. Hallelujah, Jesus. He's our Savior. He's our strength. He's our shepherd. He's our song. He's our salvation. He's everything that you need here this morning. King of kings, Lord of lords. He's matchless and holy. I want you to come and consider the cost here this morning. Thank you for joining us today. If you want more information, connect with us on our website at missionpoint.ca. God bless you.